0: This is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith. Coming up, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben and friends on Egypt, the prison state where the COP27 climate conference will meet. But first, they knew they were selling climate disaster. They didn't care.
1: Big Tobacco knew their products were killing their customers. Did oil, gas and coal executives know they were killing climate and species? Enter investigative reporter and author Jeff Dembicki with his proof, the new book, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change. Jeff won the 2018 Green Prize for Sustainable Literature. He is a regular contributor to The Tie-E and Vice. From Brooklyn, New York, Jeff Dembicki, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
2: Thanks so much for having me on the
1: show. Well, one of the Biggest storms in U.S. history. One of the top five just hit Florida after causing blackouts in Puerto Rico and all of Cuba. In your research, did you find evidence executives and owners of fossil fuel companies knew this would happen?
2: I found evidence that oil and gas executives at some of the biggest companies in the United States and in the world actually have been warned about the dangers of climate change due to the burning of their products since at least 1959. And the executives have repeatedly ignored those warnings, lied to the public about climate change, and now we're facing the disasters like this hurricane.
1: Tell us about climate activism rising out of the Philippines following their killer typhoon, Haiyan.
2: So in 2013, one of the largest storms ever recorded in human history um, hit the Philippines, and it killed thousands of people. And so the Human Rights Commission in that country ended up launching an investigation into several dozen of the largest corporate polluters on the planet. And as part of that investigation... It looked into whether these companies had known about climate change and then intentionally hid that information from the public and sabotaged solutions. And um, the investigation determined that there was a lot of credible evidence to support these types of allegations.
1: So, Jeff, you grew up in Alberta, Canada, home to the notorious oil sands mega projects. What drew you into this expose of the fossil fuel industry?
2: So from a very early age, I was surrounded by oil. Often, literally, um, my brother and I played at a playground that was underneath an oil refinery so we could see the, the towers of it when we were on the monkey bars. You know, much later, I learned about climate change through things such as watching An Inconvenient Truth And that led me into a career of climate writing, but I specifically got interested in the history of the lies around climate change after I learned about the Koch brothers for the first time and how they had used their fossil fuel fortune to spend millions of dollars on think tanks that promoted the idea that climate change isn't real. So the Koch brothers happened to own an oil and gas refinery in Minnesota that's one of the largest refiners of oil in the U.S. from Alberta. And I realized then that all of this oil that I had been surrounded by as a kid and growing up was fueling a massive disinformation campaign in the U.S.
1: The old question in criminal trials, Jeff, is what did they know and when did they know it? How early did you find out oil companies were warned their products could change the climate of the world?
2: A really dramatic example of that took place in 1959. And this was at an event at Columbia University that that was celebrating the 100th birthday of the oil and gas industry. So a bunch of the heads of the big companies were there. And at the gathering, Edward Teller gave a speech about climate change. And Edward Teller is, is quite an interesting person to give such a speech. Because he's one of the people who helped invent the atomic bomb. During his speech, Edward Teller warns the room that the products that these oil companies were pulling from the ground, when those products were burned, they release emissions into the atmosphere. Those emissions warm the atmosphere. This could potentially melt the polar ice caps. In the very city where the industry was celebrating its 100th birthday, New York City, could potentially be underwater one day. So this was in 1959. The industry has had decades to respond to these warnings.
1: Yeah, they hired, the fossil fuel companies hired real scientists to look into these dangers posed by their products, but somehow those reports never really made it to the public. Why didn't we hear about this in the 1980s when climate restoration would have been way easier?
2: Or the 1970s. Exxon was conducting very cutting-edge research at the time, spending serious money studying what it called the greenhouse gas effect. And the reason that we didn't hear about this science and what I learned while reading hundreds of pages of confidential oil industry documents is that the science wasn't being produced for the benefit of humankind. The science was being produced so these companies could learn more about the economic risks facing their business models. So they knew, for example, if climate change turned out to be real, which they learned that it was, this would likely lead to environmental regulations that could harm their profits. And so we see that beginning in the 1990s, a bunch of the major oil and gas companies, including Exxon, including Koch Industries, they began campaigns to intentionally mislead the public about climate change to make people think that it was a theory instead of a fact.
1: Well, sure, bureaucrats and scientists further down the chain and companies like Exxon and Shell knew the danger, but maybe their warnings never reached top decision-makers.
2: There's a lot of evidence in the documents that people high up in these companies received warnings. And one particularly interesting document to me was produced by a company owned by Exxon in Canada called Imperial Oil. And so Imperial started studying solutions to climate change in the early 1990s, ways we could actually fix this thing and get it under control. And Imperial Oil determined that this was indeed possible. If we started taxing carbon emissions... On a large enough scale, this could lead to the, quote, stabilization of greenhouse gas emissions. However, Imperial, which is owned by Exxon, determined that such a policy would be bad for its profits, and it even calculated the, the precise hits that the company would face. And so Imperial created a memo that it also circulated to Exxon that advised people at the company on how to speak about climate change to people in the media and people in the government. And one of the main talking, talking points was for people at the company to present any solution to climate change as economically reckless, as destroying people's livelihoods. And in fact, the research that Imperial had done showed the exact opposite to be true.
1: When I did research for Greenpeace in the late 1980s, I found a cluster of well-funded front groups and a half-dozen scientists who threw up a smokescreen about tobacco dangers. And the very same people then attacked any environmental regulations to limit toxic pollution, even asbestos. And in the mid-1990s, we could see they added climate denial to their games. Talk to us about the culture of money and climate denial in the 1990s.
2: Yeah, so it's quite interesting that a lot of the same groups and people that worked on Big Tobacco's denial of cancer risk also then worked on Big Oil's denial of climate risk. Um, In many cases, these were the exact same organizations. And the, the 1990s were a really interesting time for climate change because James Hansen had just delivered... Um, a warning to, to Congress about climate change, and he put it on the public's radar for the first time. And there was actually a lot of political momentum across the spectrum to deal with climate change, and it, it wasn't seen as something that would be really bad for the economy. In fact, a lot of people thought it would create lots of jobs and new industries. And the, the oil companies that I look at in the book... They were terrified of this because it, they knew it could drive their business totally into the ground. And so these these companies came together behind front groups like the Global Climate Coalition and intentionally spread lies about climate change. And this is all contained in documents written by the industry and and its and its groups themselves. At one point there was a document examining some of the contrarian theories that the oil and gas industry was pushing, and it determined that these contrarian theories were not legitimate, not scientifically supported, and yet the lies still continued.
1: Well, one of the big stars of climate denial was an alleged climate scientist from the University of Virginia, Patrick Michaels. He said warming would be minimal, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change were all alarmists, and climate was no crisis. Was he paid by big coal and utility companies?
2: Well, he did work on one of the first ever climate change denial campaigns where they were testing out whether this strategy could even work, and that was sponsored by a whole bunch of coal burning electric utilities. And so in those campaigns, they were, you know, kind of they were kind of ex- experimental and they they picked three small communities in the United States measured people's views on climate change, and by and large, people thought that climate was serious and, and governments needed to do something about it. And then the campaign ran ads where Patrick Michaels and others said that this was all being exaggerated, it was just big government, the climate science had a bunch of holes in it, and afterwards, public belief in climate change and the need for action, dropped quite a bit. And so the people behind these campaigns knew that they could take this national and have it be effective, and that's exactly what happened.
1: Was the late talk show host Rush Limbaugh also paid for his constant climate denial?
2: I don't know if he was paid, but it seems like he was, and he took part in some of these early test campaigns that were trying to sow uncertainty in the public about the climate science. So he was he was involved from quite an early stage.
1: Jeff, did you develop a theory of why so many oil executives are drawn to far-right libertarian politics and fundamentalist Christianity?
2: That's an interesting question, and I, I don't know if I have a grand theory to explain it, but the pattern certainly is striking. I was looking at the the company that was responsible for establishing the first commercial tar sands operation in Canada back in the 60s. And that was Sun Oil. And Howard Pugh from Sun Oil um, was extremely religious and extremely um, anti-communist. And Pugh had vigorously opposed the New Deal and was just obsessed with the idea that communism was creeping Um, steadily across the entire planet. And so Pew, due to his religious beliefs and his libertarianism, saw the establishment of a massive tar sands industry in Canada as a way to fight back the godless communism that he thought was taking control of the planet. And, And you see these types of attitudes again and again among the types of people who lead oil companies.
1: Tracking the Climate Challenge, Radio EcoShock at EcoShock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Jeff Dambicki, author of the new book, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change. Well, I think another reason, Jeff, that some of these uh, magnates who made billions and billions out of fossil fuels would be attracted to libertarian politics, at least, is that it lets them keep those profits. There's no idea they should have to socialize it and, say, use them to, oh, I don't know, build hospitals or retaining walls to keep New York from flooding.
2: Exactly. A lot of the people who run large oil companies absolutely hate regulations, especially environmental regulations, which they see as being a drain on their profits. And the perfect case study of this is Coke Industries, which owns the Pine Bend refinery in Minnesota that is the largest refiner of Canadian tar sands oil in the U.S. And this refinery is is really central to the whole Coke's business empire. Executives at the company described it as the cash cow of the company, which which really made it possible for the Kochs to become the hugely influential business people that they are today. And so for decades, the Kochs have supported think tanks like the Cato Institute, which push the view that government is the problem, any sort of regulation is bad, and oftentimes that climate change isn't even real. And so in addition to confusing the public and slowing down action to fix the disaster, this also allows Coke to keep polluting from its various refineries and other fossil fuel operations.
1: So, right, we've got all kinds of fossil fuel industry expansion around the world. The Australians are increasing their coal production. We have fracking. We have offshore drilling, even attempts to drill for oil and gas in the Arctic. So why in the petroleum papers do you, Jeff, focus on the Canadian tar sands as key to the history of climate denial and inaction?
2: The tar sands represent some of the biggest oil reserves on the entire planet, rivaling even Saudi Arabia. And decades ago, really key U.S. companies like Sun Oil, Coke Industries, and Exxon all got involved with the industry. And later, other major players like Shell and BP also got involved. Greenhouse gas emissions from the industry have been massive. And that obviously has been bad for climate change. But what I really focused in on the book, in what all of the confidential oil industry documents that I reviewed showed me, was that This industry helped bankroll a lot of the denial campaigns that we're still living with. Exxon did a lot of its early climate research in Canada, and that was due to an urge to protect its profits in the tar sands. Coke Industries, of course, made a huge part of its early fortune from importing tar sands oil into the United States. And so it had a huge financial incentive to start spreading doubt and delay. And so I don't think it's really possible to separate the Canadian tar sands from a lot of the disinformation around climate that we've witnessed over the past few decades.
1: Has anybody been able to figure out actual numbers for how much atmospheric carbon the Canadian tar sands uh, are responsible for?
2: I'm sure people have done that type of research. And what what I can say is that the tar sands emissions are, are huge. They're still growing. They're the number one reason why Canada has been unable to achieve its climate targets. And they're currently considered one of the, the carbon bombs across the planet that has the potential really, you know, to drive us over the edge in terms of climate change.
1: Well, let's talk about Canada for a second. For 10 years, Canada suffered through Prime Minister Harper, who pretty well worked for the Western oil interests. The Canadian government became odious internationally, trying to water down or kill climate agreements behind the scenes. We were so relieved to get climate-talking Justin Trudeau instead for Prime Minister, but then Trudeau pushed pipelines. He even spent billions of dollars of taxpayers' money to build a pipeline no private company would touch. What happened to the Green, Prime Minister of Canada?
2: Well, both those leaders are are really interesting, and Stephen Harper is interesting because he actually worked at the Exxon-owned Imperial Oil earlier in his career, and later, when Harper was Prime Minister, he adopted a lot of the same tactics around climate science as his former employer. The Canadian government was producing a lot of really credible climate science, Harper brought in efforts to make sure that journalists couldn't learn about that science, and he cut funding to the departments that were creating it. So then people were rightfully relieved when Justin Trudeau came into power. But essentially, Trudeau was captive to the same disinformation machine that that all leaders in Canada are captive to because the oil industry just has such huge political weight. In the country, and what what I thought was really fascinating and also damning was that, after Trump became president, there were documents produced by the Canadian government showing that it actually viewed this as a good thing for the country 's oil industry and an opportunity that oil producers could exploit
1: well, this doesn 't happen in a vacuum. Jeff talk to us about the ambivalence to climate warnings by Rupert Murdoch and his media empire, why did they eventually channel Fox News and all the tabloids to attack climate science and action?
2: In the late 2000s, there started to be just a ton of political and social momentum around fixing climate change, and one of the most dramatic examples of that was Rupert Murdoch. So Murdoch decided in the late 2000s that he wanted his media empire to start educating the public about climate change and showing them that it was a big deal. Murdoch even gave interviews saying he was thinking of speaking to Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly about using their massive Fox platforms to do this kind of climate messaging. And so this, this is a huge opportunity because it was one of the biggest right-wing media empires in the world, ready to really push its viewers to take this seriously. Instead, as the Obama administration tried to pass comprehensive climate legislation, companies like Coke Industries became extremely alarmed about how that would affect their profits. And they were one of the driving forces behind all of the huge Tea Party protests we started seeing in the 2010s. So as these Tea Party protests gained more and more attention, Fox News and other right-wing media were sort of captive to it in a way. They, they covered it constantly. They knew their audience wanted to hear about it. And, and this really pulled the network pretty far to the right, to the point where in a few years, especially on climate change, they were doing stories saying that the crisis wasn't real. And It's quite dramatic when you look at Fox coverage of the issue from even a few years before the Tea Party took off. They were doing, like, earnest explainers to people, um, talking to them about the science and potential solutions. Then, within a few years, they're telling their viewers climate change doesn't exist. And so I don't think Coke Industries was fully responsible for that, but it's hard to separate the rise of the Tea Party and right-wing medias turn in a very denialist direction.
1: That's so sad for humankind. It just didn't have to be that way at all.
2: We had so many opportunities to get this emergency under control, decades and decades of opportunities, and what my research has shown me is that at every moment of opportunity, the lies from oil and gas, intensified to such a degree that it's been hard for people to sort out what is true and what's not. And ultimately, the end result of that has been that we squandered many of these opportunities.
1: And talk to us about the infiltration of big oil into the Trump administration. How the heck did Exxon oil executive Rex Tillerson become Secretary of State? I mean, was the Trump administration really a kind of glory peak for the big oil takeover of America?
2: in some ways it certainly seems that way and i would have loved to have watched the conversations among trump administration people as they deliberated about making rex tillerson secretary of state and i think the oil and gas industry probably would have achieved a lot more under trump if his presidency hadn't been so if if it hadn't been so destabilizing and attracted So much fighting and and negative attention on on so many fronts. I, I think the oil and gas industry would actually prefer someone a bit less bombastic than Trump. Someone like Stephen Harper, for example, in Canada, who is very boring and sort of emotionless in public, and then behind the scenes gives them a wish list of everything they want.
1: Has the oil industry given up their fight to stop climate action even now in 2022?
2: Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and there's a really interesting congressional investigation led by Democrats underway right now into the lies of the oil and gas industry, which just released a bunch of internal documents from companies like Exxon and Shell. And the documents show people in the company kind of revealing that despite all of the, the promises for climate action made by companies, like Exxon, that's not actually translating into any changes in their business model behind the scenes. At the end of the day, these companies still want to dig up as much oil and gas as possible.
1: I wonder if there will be climate tribunals someday with old men brought to court like the old Nazis were for the Holocaust crimes against humanity. How is climate doing in the courts?
2: Well, there are lawsuits filed against the industry in actually in more than 20 jurisdictions across the United States, and the Canadian city, Vancouver, recently took some action in that direction. And a lot of these lawsuits rely on the same documents that I used to write this book. It could be, it could be several years before any of these lawsuits result in a ruling, but many of the people who are helping push these lawsuits forward are also looking back to the tobacco lawsuits, and actually some of the, the lawyers on the big oil stuff were also lawyers against big tobacco. With tobacco, it took decades and decades to break through the industry's wall of lies, but when that break did come, it led to one of the largest corporate settlements in human history, and you can only imagine that such a settlement would be many, many times larger for the big oil companies.
1: For now, the harsh fact is climate crime does pay, at least until the sea washes over your oceanfront estate or climate crashes the civilization and the banks that keep your money. So you can lie for fossil fuel companies and die rich. Jeff, how do you keep your faith in living? How do you keep going?
2: For a long time, we've been fed this idea that we're all equally responsible for climate change, you know, through the cars that we drive, heating our homes, And to me, this is actually a really demoralizing narrative because if we're all equally responsible, then nobody can be held accountable for sabotaging all of the solutions that we've had over the years. And so when, when I did this research and I reviewed all of these confidential documents, that alerted me to the fact that we're in this situation that we're in now largely due to the actions of a relatively small number of companies and executives. And that, to me, is a much more hopeful narrative because it shows that if we hold these companies accountable, we can potentially remove one of the hugest roadblocks to action. And these might be extremely powerful companies, but I think that task is still a lot easier than changing the individual behavior of billions and billions of people across the planet.
1: Jeff Dimbicki, your previous book was Are We Screwed? How a New Generation is Fighting to Survive Climate Change. You were looking for signs of hope in younger people ready for climate action. How is that looking five years later as the heat, fires, floods, and megastorms keep on coming?
2: I would say I still feel hopeful. And a lot of the younger people I was talking to in that book have gone on to exert pretty huge influence on climate policy all around the world. And you can see that, for example, in all of the the talk we've had over the past few years about the Green New Deal, which was really a policy that was pushed by younger climate activists. And I, I think even... In the huge Inflation Reduction Act that the Biden administration just passed, which for all its flaws, is still one of the biggest investments in climate action in federal U.S. history. I still have hope.
1: And as we wrap up here, Jeff, is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners, kind of a a summing up of of where your book is coming from?
2: I would say that at the moments when listeners feel like they're being bombarded with the most lies and they feel the most. Confused about climate change, that's a deliberate strategy. And that roar of disinformation is so loud because we're in, we, we have a huge opportunity to actually do something positive about the crisis. And my reporting alerted me to how this happens time and time again. The moment when we face the greatest possible opportunity is when the lies become the loudest.
1: From Brooklyn, New York, we've been speaking with author and investigative journalist Jeff Dembicki. You can look for his new book, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change. As always, I will post more information and helpful links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Jeff, thank you for speaking truth to power here on Radio Ecoshock.
2: Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm Alex Smith reporting. You're listening to EcoShock Radio, for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, EcoShock.org. Radio EcoShock. This November, politicians, press, and NGOs converge for the Climate Cop 27. It will be held in a walled resort in Egypt. What is the situation there? Famous author Naomi Klein is joined by climate activist Bill McKibben and Voices Banned in Egypt. The focus is leading Egyptian intellectual Allah Abdel El-Fattah, who is now slowly dying in prison in a hunger strike. The basics of environmental activism and green decency are at stake. Sadly, the audio from Cairo with Allah's sister Sanaa Seif was not clear enough for radio. We do hear a recent letter from El Fatah on global warming, read by his other sister, Mona Saif. Here is Naomi Klein.
3: I'm Naomi Klein, senior contributing writer at The Intercept and co-director of the Center for Climate Justice at the University of British Columbia. Eleven years ago, Cairo's Tahrir Square captured the world's imagination with a hopeful youth-led movement for liberation and democracy. Day after day, night after night, young people held the square, refusing to leave until their country was transformed. They turned Tahrir into a site of radical participatory democracy, where they denounced corruption and systemic torture. They faced down police, risked their lives, and vowed to avenge their murdered friends. Eventually, they built enough power, as you saw, to topple Hosni Mubarak, the dictator who had ruled Egypt for three brutal decades. The spirit of Tahrir coursed with promise and it leapt across borders. It helped inspire other youth-led movements in Europe and North America, including Occupy Wall Street, which in turn helped birth a new anti-capitalist and eco-socialist politics. In fact, you can draw a pretty straight line from Tahrir to Occupy to Bernie to AOC and the Sunrise Movement calling for a Green New Deal. Inspiration is a tough thing to measure, but there can be no doubt that the world owes the youth of Tahrir a debt of gratitude. But inside Egypt, the story did not end well. Elections came before the youth movement had time to coalesce around an electoral force, and inside that vacuum, the Muslim Brotherhood won power at the ballot box. They didn't deliver on the changes for which young Egyptians had risked their lives. And so they took to the streets again. And in the discontent, the military saw its opening. In 2013, it staged a coup, placing in power General Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. Later, he traded in his uniform for a dark business suit, ran for president in sham elections, and has been in power ever since. In Egypt today, much of civil society, including environmental activism, is criminalized. Human rights activists, journalists, and academics are routinely arrested, Critical news sites are blocked and tens of thousands of political prisoners languish behind bars, including iconic voices uh, of that hopeful Arab Spring uprising, like Ala Abed al Fatah, who we heard at the end of that clip. This is the highly repressive context in which a different United Nations climate summit known as COP27. Tens of thousands of delegates will attend, including many youth activists. But this time, don't expect any unruly protests. This will be a highly contained, controlled, and orchestrated summit, unprecedented in its constraints. Meanwhile, the Egyptian activists who once inspired the world are not able to attend at all. Many, like Ale, are in prison. Others are in exile. And for those who are not, the risks of disrupting this kind of green PR show will simply be too high. Today's event is about the ethics of holding a climate summit under such a repressive regime, a cop in a cop state. We're gonna ask whether Egypt's political prisoners are getting the solidarity they, they deserve from the international climate movement. Inside the climate justice movement, we often talk about needing to build a politic that does not create sacrifice zones, places and people who get trampled in the name of getting a law passed or a deal done. Yet many Egyptians today tell us that they feel they have become the new sacrifice zone that their imprisoned loved ones are being sacrificed in the name of these negotiations. These are tough, complicated issues, and we are gonna explore them with some of the smartest and most courageous people I know. I hope it provides some important political context as Egypt enters the global spotlight ahead of COP 27. I'll be co-hosting this live cast with an expert on Egypt's environmental politics, my UBC and CCJ colleague, Rafi Arafin start with you, Bill. Um, there's a lot of people watching who love you, who are part of the climate movement. So first, tell us where you are, why you're in bed um, and whether we should be worried. And second of all, tell us about this 27th United Nations Climate Summit. You have been to a lot of these things. You and I actually met at an earlier COP in 2009 in Copenhagen. Um, what makes this 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 conference different? What's at stake in this particular round of negotiations in Sharm el-Sheikh?
1: 350.org founder Bill McKibben. Well, first of all, Naomi, such a pleasure to
4: join you and not to worry about me at all. I'm sorry that I appear in such parlous condition, but I'm, I had some unexpected surgery yesterday and I'm still in the hospital but I I did not want to miss this opportunity because I can't really think of anything more important that we could be doing this right now. You're right, I've been to many of these cops over the years in, in my work on climate. And this one is, as Rafi was saying a minute ago, going to be very different. It's really the first one held in a kind of active police state. I think that the first realization that has to kind of wash over most of us who are going, is that were we Egyptians, we'd be in jail. We wouldn't be at the COP. That the things that we've done, Naomi, that you've done, that I've done, whatever, would have been way more than sufficient to land us an equally long term in an Egyptian prison. And so we have absolutely no choice but to try and figure out how to speak out and stand up for the people who are there you know, to the degree that we've been able to get anything done as a climate movement, it's been because we've been able to mobilize in the streets to do the kind of work that just is impossible right at the moment in Egypt. So we're going to have to try and be at least a little bit of voice for people who don't have it. It is an important meeting. It's the first COP that's been held in Africa. And there'll be a lot of focus on the unfairness of global north-south relations. The entire continent of Africa has put about 2% of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, and yet they're taking the hardest hit of any place on earth. That's why people have been hopeful that this could be a significant cop. But that doesn't mean for a minute that one overlooks the context in which it's taking place. Hopefully, we'll be able to exert some leverage one way or another to get people out of jail, to open things up at least a crack in a repressive society.
1: Rafi Arafan, University
5: of British Columbia. Sharif, Sh- <laughs> Sh- 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 a question for you. So a-, a lot of people are attending the COP and know a really like a great deal about climate change, right? But very little about Egypt. Can you zoom out a bit and give us a a bigger picture of the human rights situation in Egypt today? Uh, You know, from our opening, right, we just saw images of Egyptians flooding the streets and overthrowing a dictator in 2011. What what really is the situation now? Sharif Abdel Koudous, activist.
6: Well, uh, as we heard, you know, the 2000 revolution was followed by a a very harsh and brutal uh, counter-revolutionary wave with the takeover of the country in 2013, uh, essentially by the military with Abdel Fattah al-Sisi at its head and backed by the police and and security apparatus. And what we've seen since then is that Egypt is run by a very tight, closed circle of military and intelligence officers that is completely opaque in its decision-making process that does not allow for any political openings or political participation and does not brook any kind of dissent or opposition. And it's clear that prison is essentially the government's answer to any problem with the citizen. Uh, There are quite literally tens of thousands of political prisoners in Egypt right now. We actually don't know the number of detainees. There's estimates, but there's just no official statistics. And this forces Lawyers and human rights advocates and independent media to try and painstakingly tabulate the the thousands trapped behind bars. Over the past several several years, Egypt's built over two dozen new prisons to house all these detainees. Uh, Just last year, Sisi announced the establishment of the Wadi Natroun prison complex, which is where Ali Abdul Fattah is currently being detained. He announced it as one of seven or eight, quote, American style prisons that are being built. And these prison complexes include courts and judicial buildings within them, presumably to make the conveyor belt from the courthouse to the prison cell more efficient. The majority of political prisoners are being held in pretrial detention. Uh, they can spend years behind bars without ever being convicted of a crime. Nearly all of them are face these kind of twin charges of spreading false news and belonging to a terrorist organization. You know, if you're in prison, if you, if you get sick, you're in trouble. Conditions are extremely poor. Uh, we've seen many cases of prisoners dying in custody as a result of medical negligence. Torture and abuse by the security forces is also widespread. Also, the number of death sentences has skyrocketed over the last eight years um, with executions often carried out en masse. And we've also seen a massive crackdown on press freedom uh, with a near complete takeover of the media landscape, with the regime kind of tightly controlling the press, not only through censorship, but through acquisition. So the General Intelligence Service, which is the intelligence branch of the military, has become the largest media owner of the country. It owns newspapers and uh, TV outlets. And meanwhile, independent journalists have to operate on the margins and in a very hostile environment. And hundreds of news websites are blocked and Egypt ranks as the third worst jailer of journalists in the world. And it imprisons actually more journalists on charges of false news than any other country in the world. But essentially this, this regime doesn't allow for kind of any political space and it essentially sees its citizens mostly as a threat. So protests of any form uh, or public gatherings of any kind are banned and demonstrations are usually met with a very harsh security crackdown and they're followed by mass arrest sweeps. We've also seen an unprecedented crackdown on civil society, which is one of uh, the r- oldest and richest in the region. Human rights organizations have been forced to scale back their operations or shut down completely. Their staff are subject to travel bans and asset freezes and, uh, and arrest. And all of this is happening in a country which spends millions and millions uh, on massive weapons purchases, becoming the third largest importer of arms in the world, all while bringing the economy kind of, you know, to the edge of collapse and and debt default. Uh, So I could go on, but this is kind of just a a quick picture of the repressive nature of this government. And it's a government that's hosting, you know, this year's UN Climate Conference.
3: So we're in this really surreal situation because you've just described a situation where regular NGOs that wouldn't be considered threatening in most countries are having to shut down. Human Rights Watch published a report last month that was about what you're describing, but specifically focused on environmental groups because of the climate summit coming and how many of them have had to disband, can't do their research anymore. Many have moved into exile. I learned that you can actually get the death sentence for receiving a foreign grant, uh, which is unbelievable or life in prison. And yet, in a month from now, we're going to have thousands of NGOs and thousands of foundations descending on Sharm el-Sheikh, getting a kind of a red carpet welcome from the Egyptian government. So what game are they playing? What are they hoping to accomplish by sort of putting on this kind of theater in Sharm el-Sheikh when they clearly have such disdain for civil society and civil society is such a central part of these summits?
1: This is Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Get all our previous programs at our website, ecoshock.org. Sharif Abdel Kudus.
6: Well, I think, yeah, it's twofold. Like, as we we heard from Bill, you know, COP27 is is being presented as the African COP. And one thrust of this is Egypt, as the host country, is trying to position itself as the voice of the global south. uh, And as one of the lead negotiators in unlocking billions of dollars a year in climate financing from from the global north that's owed to the global south. But more importantly, I think in a broader sense, Egypt's using its position uh, as host of the summit to try and help whitewash or greenwash its reputation as a repressive police state. It's hired a huge PR firm, uh, the Boston Consulting Group, to help burnish its image. And it's clearly using the COP to lend itself further international legitimacy And I think a lot of activists and a lot of people on the ground are very afraid of what will happen after the COP finishes, actually, and all eyes turn away. But I think what we can expect in Shad Sheik is carefully managed theater. You know, we we all know the problems regarding uh, climate diplomacy and um, UN climate summits, you know, really amounting to anything concrete. But they really are also convergence points for the climate justice movement, convergence points of dissent. Uh, with protests and informal gatherings, both inside and outside. And this will not be the case in Sharm el-Sheikh. Sharm el-Sheikh is a resort in Sinai that literally has a wall around it. Um, It can be very tightly controlled. Any protests that are allowed will be very carefully managed. But more importantly, as you mentioned, a lot of the members of Egyptian civil society and environmental groups that are critical of the government will not even be in attendance. Those that manage to be will have to be very careful in how they operate. These are many of the people of them, they're the ones who are in prison, they're the ones who are subject to various forms of legal harassment and and repression. And as you mentioned, it's also become very difficult and dangerous for civil society organizations to even get funding. So not too long after taking office, CC amended a decree in the penal code uh, that made receiving foreign funding to undermine, quote, the national interest, Or, you know, to destabilize the country, punishable by life in prison or the death sentence. You know, what's quite ironic about that is that the biggest recipient of foreign funding by orders of magnitude is the government. Uh, They've taken on massive amounts of foreign debt, using the money to, to fund a very flawed economic policy with wasteful mega vanity projects. And now the country's facing a real risk of defaulting on its foreign debt, which I think everyone can agree destabilizes the country. Anyway, as Human Rights Watch also points out, there are environmental activities that are tolerated in Egypt. And this is part of kind of uh, the game that they're playing. So things that, that are less kind of confrontational, like trash collection, recycling, uh, renewable energy, very importantly, climate finance also, these are issues that are allowed to be discussed. Uh, environmental issues that implicate the government are not tolerated in any form whatsoever. So things like industrial pollution, environmental harm from real estate or tourism development, issues like coal, uh, for example, are off limits. So Egyptian coal imports, much of it purchased from the United States, have risen over the past several years, driven by strong demand from the cement sector to power cement factories and actually, Egypt, Egypt's largest importer of coal is also its largest cement producer, and that's the El Arish Cement Company. And that was built in 2016 by none other than the Egyptian military. So, any criticism of that is not tolerated in the slightest. Um, And we see these massive amounts of cement being poured into Egypt's natural environment. You know, the government's built hundreds and hundreds of new bridges and roads and uh, cutting down trees and green spaces in the process. They've gone on this massive construction spree of new cities with a new administrative capital. Egypt's also the second largest gas producer in Africa and is actively scaling up its oil and gas production. So, I mean, that's all just to say that as these government officials and delegates and members of international civil society and the climate justice movement come to Sharm el-Sheikh for COP27, where Egypt will really be playing up its role as, as the host, we cannot forget that thousands of political prisoners like Ale, like uh, Abdul Minam Abdel like Muhammad Oksijin, like Mohammed Bakr, like Maru Arafah, will remain behind bars as the summit's underway and we should not forsake
5: them. And we'll hear briefly for about three minutes from one of the letters that Alec has gotten out out of prison. Uh, We'll then uh, move to hear from from his family members. So stay with us for the next few minutes. Mona
1: Saif.
0: Hi, I'm Mona, Alec's sister. I'll share with you bits of his uh, letter. As you can see, for some very odd reason, it never made its way to us. So he had to rewrite. How are you, Mama? Tell me about your health. My last letter to you, the one you never got, was mainly thinking aloud about global warming because of the news from Pakistan. It was just trying out an idea I have about the roles that demography and election cycles play in the major industrial and consumer societies in tipping the balance away from taking serious measures. The idea was that aging societies, societies that rely on migrants to renew their lifeblood, societies where political rights don't extend to all taxpayers and societies that drift further and further away from the extended family, these societies are not invested in the future and the prosperity of generations that haven't yet been born, are not invested enough to sacrifice present privileges in favor of the remote future, and they don't reward or punish politicians for the results of their decisions after they retire from office. So the first idea in the letter was that the global West and North will not do anything that involves a sacrifice of prosperity or competitive advantage, nor will they gamble with their political institutional stability. This isn't just because of the greed of big capitalists, but because of the composition of their societies. Decision makers know this. They accept it and they reproduce it. The only actions they can take are actions that are potentially profitable, like the dream of green economy, or that tap into technical solutions that don't require social change. The last part of the letter said that we Africans, mainly Africans because the Arabs at this juncture will be bogged down with the petroleum state's efforts to maximize their economic gains, and translate them into ever more extreme strategic adventures for fear of the consequences of the shift away from fossil fuels, i.e., for fear of having to face the realities of the desert without petrodollars. We Africans, well, we don't have any real impact. We're not the cause of the disaster. We have no leverage over the countries that are the cause. We don't have the way to propose solutions, nor, sadly, the institutions necessary to protect our continent and societies from the looming catastrophes. That panic then was probably when I moved on to the question, what's to be done? It revolves around the idea that the demography of the continent indicates that the next century could witness an African (coughs) renaissance. It's the most genetically diverse continent, both for humans and for domesticated animals and plants. Maybe, what we'll have to do is realize that the fight over the coming decades is not ours that ours are the longer roads. In the letter, I thought about what this might mean, what it would need at the level of state building and institutions and alliances, what kind of knowledge would need to be produced, ideas disseminated. So that, you see, is the lost letter. It was probably well written, flowing, lucid. So maybe they felt it was dangerous. Or as Rami Shaaf said, chaos is usually the best explanation in Egypt.
1: This is Radio EcoShock with the online presentation by The Intercept, Egypt's Carcerial Climate Summit. Carcerial means prison. Naomi Klein.
3: That was Mona Saif reading a letter from her brother, Alai Abed al-Fatah, written in prison where he is still in Cairo. He's, he's describing a letter that he had written about the climate crisis that was confiscated by his jailer, so he had to rewrite and summarize the letter, uh, which is just an example of just the chaos and uncertainty uh, that this extraordinary family has been living with for a decade now.
1: Rafi, questions for writer and activist Omar Robert Hamilton.
5: You wrote in a recent article, the government is, is relentless in its mission to express its power over a populace, through police violence, mass incarceration, media propaganda, and urban engineering, all emanating from a hyper-centralized core of of control. So for you, Omar, how does hosting the COP27 really figure into this relentless mission for the state to express power domestically and and gain legitimacy, uh, both regionally and on an international
7: scale?
1: Omar Robert Hamilton.
7: Yeah, well, I suppose if we're thinking about COP, then we're thinking about, principally we're thinking about energy. And one of the things about the Egyptian state is that it's stripped away all of the things that one could reasonably expect a state to provide from kind of functioning roads to healthcare to education to whatever. And the only thing it really does is keep the lights on. And so you really feel there how electrical power or motor power is political power for the regime and for the state. And of course, that's the same for any government. Keeping the lights on is the central thing, as we've seen just now with this trust is taking on 65 billion pounds of debt to keep people's energy prices down over the winter. And Sisi is uh, the same. Um, Anybody that was following Egypt in 2012 will remember how the last months of the Muslim Brotherhood's regime or administration were characterized by constant power cuts. And that was due to mismanagement on their part. There were some theories about sabotage at the time. But what was important was that the electricity kept cutting and that really, really, really undermined their legitimacy. And Sisi's been very careful not to repeat that mistake. He's taken on huge debts to build three combined cycle gas power plants that Siemens built, that he took on, I think, €8 billion of debt at an undisclosed rate from German banks. And that made it the biggest deal in Siemens' history and built out a lot of electrical infrastructure so that now the state can produce about 50% more electricity than it actually ever needs to, even at peak demand. So clearly, kind of power and electrical power, and keeping the lights on, is at the core of CC's claim to legitimacy. And I think what we're seeing with COP is now, if everybody is keen on sustainability then, well, we can get behind that and we can be internationally celebrated for it. Like now, if green power is centrally controlled and is propping up an autocratic state, then this is suddenly something to be celebrated by the world. So this is part of, I think, in the the long term, the position this COP holds. But of course, in the short term, it's also just a big PR win. You know, it's a mark of international legitimacy. As Bill said, it's the first COP to take place in a police state. Um, So this is what greater international legitimacy is there than than dozens of world leaders and thousands of NGOs descending and sort of shaking hands and acting as if this is a normal place to be and to do business and to, in theory, work on addressing the kind of, you know, the most existential problem facing us as a species.
1: Naomi Klein.
3: I was just thanking Omar and recommending his piece Before the Cops, Sustainable Power, um, which I've learned a great deal from. And I just tweeted, if people want to take a look, at that piece. Uh, we want to thank all of our incredible guests. This has just been a really special event. Bill McKibben joining us from his hospital bed. Don't worry, he's fine. Sharif Abdul Qadus, Sanad so when safe. And of course, just now, Omar Robert Hamilton. They've given us a really powerful education in the situation in which this climate summit is going to unfold. The human rights situation, the economic situation, the political situation, the geopolitical situation. Everything that we've won in this movement is because of activism. It's because of political pressure. It's because our politicians are afraid of us. They're afraid that we won't vote for them. They're afraid of our sit-ins. They're afraid of protests. They're afraid of direct action in frontline communities. And when those freedoms are lost, when people are afraid of their rulers, then we're never going to make progress. So this isn't hard to understand. Political freedoms and climate justice are intertwined. So to quote Ale. His famous quote that is the title of his incredible book, which you should all pick up, You Have Not Yet Been Defeated. Today, October 6, 2022, is day 188 of Alec's hunger strike. His life hangs in the balance.
1: That was the online presentation titled Egypt's Carceral Climate Summit. It is now posted on YouTube. Find a link in my blog. The event was live streamed October 6th, presented by The Intercept and co-moderated by the University of British Columbia faculty members Mohammed Rafi Arifin and Naomi Klein from the new Center for Climate Justice. Now you know. That's it for this show. Check out all our past programs free at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening, and let's meet up again next week.